On this episode of the Great Point Podcast, one of the top talents in Hollywood, Larry Tang, who is currently the executive producer of Graceland and the director of CBS's new show, Supergirl, stops by to talk about his career, the art of making great television, and why TV executives haven't quite figured out how to make a drama about basketball. Let's talk hoops. Let's talk crossovers. Let's talk dimes. Let's talk hoops. Let's talk rumor. Let's talk opinions. Let's talk truth. Let's talk future. Let's talk present. Let's talk past. Fundamentals and flash. Me running the flow. Stanko running the show like a young Steve Nash. I'd like to welcome all of you to the Great Point Podcast. A different type of guest on today's pod. We've had former coaches, players, and uh, those who have put major marks on the history of basketball. But today, I'm bringing on another fellow hoophead. Larry Tang is Hollywood, and, and not in the Lakers sense, but rather in the primetime television sense. Uh, he's one of the most successful television directors and producers in TV. He's directed Criminal Minds, Graceland, NCIS, Los Angeles, Hawaii Five-0, Elementary. He was the executive producer for Medium for 69 episodes. And uh, now he's the executive producer for Graceland, which can be found on the USA Network. And he's directing CBS's new hit show, Supergirl. Quite a resume for a basketball junkie and a friend I've known for a really long time. Larry Tang, welcome to the Great Point Podcast. Thank you, Adam. Happy to be here, man. I'm so glad that you uh, that you were able to join me after a long day of shooting uh, Supergirl. I'm curious, Larry, we've known each other since we went to Ithaca together uh, in the late 90s. And I, I've always known about your loves both for basketball and for television. So which did come first, your love of basketball or your love of TV? <laughs> Um, I think my love of basketball came before my love of TV, to be honest with you. You know, that's been with me since I was a little kid, you know. I'm a New Jersey Nets fan, tried and true. Syracuse <laughs> Orangeman, do or die. What are some of your early memories of those those two teams? Um, <laughs> a lot of futility, <laughs> man. Um, no, I remember with the Nets, you know, I remember the Draws and Petrovic years, Chris Morris. Kenny Anderson, Derek Coleman, you know, high draft picks all the time, but we never ever lived up to our potential. And then I remember, you know, I think being a teenager and, uh, you know, hearing the news that Draws got into a car accident when he died, and that was always a, a real sad moment for me because he was a hero of mine. You know, I had one in every sport, and he was my basketball hero for sure. Uh, and that was always a heartbreaking moment. I remember that. Um, I remember with Syracuse. I remember uh, our freshman year at Ithaca. I guess it was like 1995. I think uh, they went to the finals, led by John Wallace. Um, mm-hmm. And they lost, they lost to Kansas, right? They lost to Kentucky. Um, then, uh, to Kentucky, okay, right. And then, uh, oh, right, in 2003 it was Carmelo and they won the uh, championship. Yes. How did you, you know, celebrate? So, <laughs> I don't remember, so that's how I celebrated. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the best celebrations for sure. So, obviously, basketball has been a, a big part of your life for, for a long time, and I know you're still playing. So, take me into the underground world of celebrity pickup hoops. What kind of games do you play in now? Uh, I play in something called the E-League. Uh, it's commissioned by a guy named Shane Duffy. Um, if I'm not mistaken, Piers back. He used to be affiliated with the NBA. Shane used to work with them. Um, you know, we had the E-League, you had the D-League, and then you had the NBA. And um, it's a mix of actors, agents, producers, directors, writers, Really, anyone who's affiliated with the business has a chance to go out there and, and, and ball and the referee games, uniforms. We have, you know, this year we're sponsored by Adidas. Uh, in years past, we were sponsored by Nike and Gatorade. Uh, Delta Airlines is a sponsor. Uh, we're actually heading into our playoffs now, and uh, my team, New York, led by uh, my man Terrell Owens, uh, we are in the finals next weekend. Oh, well, congratulations. I'm not going to claim any more ownership than I actually have. I mean, I am, I am a solid bench player for this team. You know, <laughs> our five stars are, are, are knockouts, man. They're, they're killing it. I mean, T.O.'s averaging like 35 points a game. Easy. Easy. Um, so, 
So I'm not going to say I'm out there, you know, carrying this team. No way. But uh, I am a part of that team. We're in the finals next weekend, and uh, we're definitely excited to be there. Oh, well, well congratulations. I caught you at a, a great time. Uh, I, I've, I've heard a lot, like I'm sure many people have, about uh, T.O.'s game. Break down his game for me. Um, you know, T.O.'s had, had a better combination of speed and size. I mean, he's exactly what you expect him to be. I mean, he's got a power game. He drives. He's incredible in size. He's got amazing hops, thunderous dunks. Plays amazing around the rim, um, and he's he's got a three point jumper too. So really, you got to guard, you know, you got to guard both sets of offense there. You know, he's good with the pass. He's, he's basically like on LeBron James. That's what he does. He, you know, he can play point forward if he needs to. He can play inside. Um, you know, on defense, we run a two three zone, and he's our middleman. He's he's invaluable to us. And uh, you know, he's a horse. He does not come out. You know, he plays all the minutes. Yeah, he's got he's got he's got he's got it all. Jumper, layup, dunk. Block shots, assists, good teammates. I'm so excited about how excited you are about uh, T.O.'s E-League abilities. And, 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 and I say that because I've, there's, there's been two other guys that have been on, on the podcast. Dave McMiniman, a writer for uh, ESPN.com, and uh, also Graham Bunn, who's a reality TV star, who, who both have played in the E-League. And both guys are just as excited about the league as, as you are. So I'm, I, this just makes me so happy. I can't tell you, Larry. It makes you feel like you're actually part of a real, you know, <laughs> professional sports league. Just with all the gear that you get, Equinox is another sponsor. But, you know, we, we, we do our best to play, you know, our version of organized team basketball, you know, full court and 20-minute uh, halves, trials and all that. You know, I'm an Eagles fan, and, you know, Despite what, what's happened in the past, you know, it, it is exciting to play with T.O. Uh, so, you know, my second year now playing with him after playing against him for, uh, you know, a couple of years before that. So I'm happy to have him on my team now. That's just awesome. So we know that NBA players sort of to that end want to be stars on TV and, and stars on TV want to be NBA stars. So what interaction have you had in your world with some NBA players? Yeah. Uh, let's see. I think I know when I was working down in uh in Burn Notice down in Miami, and that's another show for USA. It wasn't the episode that I directed, but uh I know Ray Allen came out. He did a cameo for that, which was uh sounded pretty cool. You know, Baron Davis supposedly is in our league this year. I've not seen him play yet a single minute, <laughs> but he's on the roster uh, I've been wondering where B D's been. Uh, you know, former UCLA product, local boy here. But uh it's not not much, you know. I mean, you see Blake Griffin doing all the commercials and stuff, and you know, there's a lot of guys out there with a lot of charisma who are just natural in front of the camera. Um, but honestly, you know, none of really crossed paths with me, uh, you know, in what I do. For those of us that aren't creating dramatic television as, as you are, can you take me through the process of your job as, first off, as an executive producer? Um. You know, on, on Graceway, which is the, the most current thing I worked on, and, you know, we're waiting to find out about a pickup right now, fingers crossed. Um, you know, the big thing for me is to help shepherd one creative vision across the board. You know, it's, it's difficult when you're making 13 episodes or 22 episodes of network TV to have that kind of creative continuity, uh, whether the stories that you tell or the, the tone of the show or the performances that you expect from your actors. So I'm involved in all that. I'm involved in the look of the show. I'm involved in, you know, the actors and, and how we execute their stories. Uh, I'm involved with how directors shoot our show. I'm involved with the content that the writers put on the page. And directly involved for, you know, putting together the most quality program that we can make. You know, it's challenging when you're on a show like USA because, you know, we shoot our shows for seven days, which is a day less than most network shows. And compared to Supergirl, it's, you know, three days less. Um, we have half the money to work with. So you got to be really creative about that, and we're trying to get the most bang for our buck. So those are a lot of the decisions, and, and, you know, that's much of what consumes my day when I'm a producer. How much do you love what you're doing? I love it, man. I thank God that, you know, I wake up every morning, and I have a dream job. Honestly, I would not be doing anything else. <laughs> well, all right, so how does all this contrast to your job as, as a director, then? You know, as a director, I'm, I'm solely responsible for making all those creative decisions for that one particular episode. 
Uh, and generally speaking, you know, I'm I'm focused only on that one episode that I'm directing. I don't I don't try to pay too much attention to what's coming up ahead. Usually, I rely on a producer to say, "Hey, this scene you're shooting now, well, that's going to form a moment that's going to happen two episodes from now." They know that stuff, you know, better than I do usually. Um, so then I just try to say, "Okay, so what are you looking for in this moment?" And I try to give them what they want. Um, but you know, most of my decision making all comes down to that one particular episode. You know, what are they going to wear? What kind of props do we have? Um, where are they going to stand? What kind of shots are we going to, you know, set up for them? Um, how is it going to look, the lighting? Uh, it's, it's much more uh, detailed and, um, I think, deliberate job in that sense. You know, I'm making decisions that directly impact what's happening in that given moment. If if I have a friend who wanted to make a hit show, what formula would he or she use to actually create one? <laughs> I wish I knew, man. If I knew, I'd be doing it. Um, I think I think what's most important is you you have a, a character that's likable. You know, and as we've shown in, in the last 10 years, um, they could be a good guy or a bad guy. You know, Tony Soprano um, is a perfect, you know, um, what do you call it, anti-hero. You know, I think Ray Donovan is similar. Um, you look at uh, Brian Cranston's character in Breaking Bad, same thing. You know, the anti-hero had a very successful wave of, of, of shows um, over the last few years. And so it goes to show that you don't have to be good morally. I think you can be charismatic and be likable. I think people will come back and watch that kind of person, uh, male or female. Um, I do think there's a huge market right now for a strong female lead. I mean, I you look at what they're doing with Supergirl, and I think it's timing. You know, you have all these shows right now that are male-dominated. You think um, Arrow and Flash. And, you know, now you have a, a legitimate female superhero who's carrying a show. She's not part of a team. She's not a sidekick. She is the lead of the show. Um, and this girl, Melissa Benoist, who was in Whiplash, she's incredible. Uh, what, what a find for them. What a great actress she is. You know, there's a really strong market for that. Um, when I worked on Medium in, in 2005... I think that's the same thing. I think we were sort of spearheading that, that strong female character movement, um, you know, and, and it launched a whole bunch of other shows where, you know, you had Jennifer Love Hewitt and Ghost Whisperer, and, you know, I can go back and, 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 and you know, do research on that, but there was a lot of female lead shows that came out because of that, because of Medium, that, you know, the show that I was working on. So have a lead character that's likable. I think, you know, having a franchise is important, which means... You know, have a reason for your fans to come back every week. You know, I think in mm-hmm. the procedural sense, you know, you have you have a case, a new case every week. Gives you a reason to come back. I think if it's a law show, it's a legal case of the week. If it's uh, something like Lost, you know, you, you have a device. You know, you have the island, and you can tell stories and backstories of the characters that, you know, where the past informs the present. And that's your device. That's part of your franchise. That's what, That's what, you know that's sort of the glue that holds the show together. I think having that's important. You know, it can't be just a show about relationships per se. I think, you know, you always have something that kind of glues it all together. So I think those are all key things that, uh, you know, hopefully can give you a successful show. And to that end, I, I've always wondered this. There have been a handful of basketball movies that have had success at the, the box office. You know, Hoosiers and Blue Chips, He Got Game, Love and Basketball, those the fish that that stole Pittsburgh was a cult classic favorite of mine. But other than like White Shadow, it seems like only football shows seem to find success when they move over to the television platform. So why do you think it's so difficult to create a successful show about basketball? I think a lot of it comes down to logistics, you know, and, and I mean, first and foremost, it's sort of like, you know, if you do a 13 episode season or a 22 episode season, you know, how many times are you going to have a basketball game portrayed in your show, in your episode? Think in terms of what it takes to actually execute, you know, a basketball scene uh, between the rehearsal time and the number of extras you need to get uh, to fill the stands, um, the the talent you need just to occupy the court so the, the gameplay feels legitimate. Um, you know, you're talking about hours of work for something that might play for 90 seconds. Um, so you really get, you ask yourself, do you, you know, do you get that bang for the buck? Uh, with Friday Night Lights, you know, they would shoot sometimes multiple football sequences over different episodes in the course of one day. And so they can get value out of their football units. You know, they would get, you know, a bunch of cameras, 
and, and cover the living hell out of it. Um, but, you know, they had a system that, that down that really worked for them. You know, then, but then you just consider the game of basketball and you have to ask yourself, you know, what is the, what is the show about that, that where basketball is the backdrop? You know, why do people care about it? Because um, you don't want it to be gimmicky. You know, you don't want basketball right. just to be there because you want to make a show about basketball. I think, I think a show about basketball only works if it, you know, again, if it informs the, the hero's journey, whatever that is. Whether that hero is a coach or a player or someone who used to be a player who now isn't playing anymore and he's trying to find himself again. Um, you know, it has to be part of the story. It can't just be there because, hey, you know, it would be fun to do a show about basketball season. Um, you know, if that worked, I'd, I'd be there in a heartbeat, you know. <laughs> right. Um, but, you know, years ago, actually, you know, I, I tried to option this book by Seth Davis called When March Went Mad. It was this, this amazing mm-hmm. um, nonfiction book about, you know, bird and magic um, and the birth of ESPN. And, um, you know, it's still very near and dear to me, and it's something I hope I can make happen one day. Because I kind of thought the story of bird and magic back in college was far more interesting than their rivalry, you know, in, in the pro years. At the time, you know, ESPN was a small cable network, and um, it really helped give a boost to them. Um, you had this great story about Indiana State, um, this sort of this, this small school, of the, was it the Missouri Valley Conference, is that right? Um, yeah. And Michigan State with their three losses, and, you know, you had Magic Johnson, you had this charismatic superstar, and then you had Larry Bird, this, sort of this quiet, introverted guy, uh, both legends in their own right, carrying their teams. I think it's a great story, and you know, I think there's a movie there one day, and you know, I'm sure somebody's gonna steal it from them, from me now. But uh, <laughs> I still have uh, I still have hopes that I can make it work. But I will tell you, the process of, of of getting people interested in it was really difficult, because you know, sports movies are are, are tough. Um, they're expensive, and especially when you're trying to make a period movie, uh, you know, you're trying to do throwback uniforms and the shoes, and again, you have to find the arenas to shoot it in. Um, it can be very difficult. You know, usually period movies will increase your budget by 30% just because of all the, all, all those um, set dressing wow. and wardrobe they get that are um, time period appropriate. You know, Disney has a, a really strong handle on sports movies right now, and, you know, they've got a formula down, you know, and it's always about a hero. You know, I, I've, been, I've been lamenting over my Eagles of late, so I've been watching Invincible a lot to make myself feel better. But, you know, they know what they're doing, man. You know, they totally know what they're doing. Even that... <laughs> that movie about the two pictures they found in India. I mean, there's always a moment to get you in those movies, you know? There's always a moment. Like, I remember watching Miracle. Every time I watch Miracle, it gets me. Every single time. You know? Um, so they, they've got it down. But uh, I'm actually surprised you like Blue Chips. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, Blue Chips has special meaning to me. Bobby Hurley's in that movie. Um, yes. you know, they, they put all these random, I think it's Matt Nover is, is one of the characters, uh, in the film and Penny Hardaway. I mean, it was more about, it was weird, it was weird because it captured, well, the thing about it was I, I, I always felt like blue chips captured the hardcore fan because they had a lot of guys in that film, like the extras when they shot some of those basketball scenes, which are some of the best basketball scenes in any basketball movie that that's ever been made was very realistic because they got real players and I just felt like they sort of got it. Now the overall movie was a little over the top clearly, but yeah, it's not so much the overall film, but just somebody was very passionate about basketball and said, if we're going to make a basketball movie, we're going to do it right. And I think that's what appealed to me about blue chips. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, did you ever see uh, is it called hurricane street? Um, or hurricane season. I think it was Forrest Whitaker or, uh, about that team down in New Orleans playing after Katrina, I think it was. Documentary? It started, it started Forrest, no, it was, a, it, was a, it was a fictional movie. It started Forrest Whitaker and I believe Robbie Jones and a, a guy named Jared Einstein. Um Two of those guys are playing my league now. But that was a, I think that was a pretty underrated basketball movie. And I, I, the story I heard was that, you know, Forrest had no idea what it was to be a basketball coach, but he, he observed this dude for like a week literally stepped on set, blew the whistle, and it was like, game on, and he just totally became this coach. Um, but you should check it out. Wow, I will. A hurricane season. So, Larry, just so people get an understanding, I, I, want, I should probably backtrack a little bit. I usually do go through with the guests 
on this podcast, uh, take you back through the, the history. I know yours, but obviously the people listening aren't going to know your beginning. So we went to Ithaca College together and then tell everyone where your career path sort of went from there. Um, after Ithaca, I, uh, I graduated. I tried to direct some theater in upstate New York and, you know, I had some success doing it, but it was just too hard to make a living. So I moved down to the city and I, my first sort of TV job, I was working at MTV Animation. There was a cartoon called Spy Groove and then another cartoon called Celebrity Deathmatch, if you remember that. Of course, um, yeah. I did, some PA, I did some PA work on that. And then I got a production assistant job on a show called Now and Again. It was on CBS. It was 1999. It starred Eric Close and Margaret Colin, um, Heather Matarazzo. It's sort of a John Goodman. He, <laughs> he gets hit by a subway train. Um, and then they take his brain and they, they install it to this superhuman body, this really good-looking, like, buff guy. Um, but it was sort of a, a love story that I think was ultimately ahead of its time. But that was my, my first sort of network job. And um, on that show, I got promoted to a coordinator position. Um, then I worked on a show called Ed, uh, which mm-hmm. was on NBC for four years. Uh, Stuckyville, you know, Tom Cavanaugh, Julie Bowen. I worked in post-production, which was, you know, basically editing and music and visual effects. Uh, I was a post-supervisor. I became a producer on that show. Um, and then after that, I did the pilot for a show called Medium uh, in, in 2004. And uh, it got picked up. And that was a job that took me out to Los Angeles. And it was six episodes originally. That ultimately became seven years and 130 episodes. And uh, that's where I got my directing break. Uh, I consider Glenn Gordon Karen my mentor. He... Yeah, he's usually known for uh, the show Moonlighting. He created that at the age of 28. He was this phenom, and you know, he's he's one of the most amazing writers I've ever worked with, and, and definitely one of the greatest teachers I've ever had. Um, so I, I thank Glenn a lot for my directing career, for giving me the opportunity, and for hiring me over and over again. Um, and then after that, I started freelancing on Hawaii Five O, uh, Criminal Minds, I've done Persons of Interest, Arrow, uh, Warehouse 13, uh, NCS LA. You know, Supergirl now. Um, I'm just having a really good time bopping around a show to show. And then this opportunity for Graceland happened um, a year ago. Um, I did an episode for them, and uh, their producer, their producing director left, and Jeff Easton, the creator, uh, gave me a call and said, I want to have, uh, I want to take you out to eat. And he made me this offer, and it sounded awesome. And he's been an incredible boss, and it's been an incredible experience to work on that show. Um, I have such near and dear friends because of that show now. And, uh, you know, again, I really hope we get to do it again for the fourth year. We we did some really great work this year, and I'm really proud of everything and proud of that crew in Florida. I think they're awesome. And, uh, you know, again, I hope, I'm just hoping that, you know, more opportunities come my way, whether it's a pilot or a movie. Um, I'm just going to keep plugging along. As as a friend of yours for a long time, I'm so happy for you, and uh, congrats on, on all your success. It's it's been really cool to uh, follow along from from afar, communicating here and there, and uh, checking in on you. I'm so I'm really really thrilled for you. I'm really interested in something that you just talked about when you so you're at Medium, and you said that you got your directing break. Mm-hmm. Can you take me through like how that all actually played out? Well, on Medium, I started as a producer, mm-hmm. and I was a, I was a post production producer and. Yeah, you know, that automatically makes you one of the, you know, top ten guys on the show to begin with. And I told Glenn that first season, you know, I, I really wanted to direct, and um, I almost had a shot when I was working on Ed. Unfortunately, that show got canceled. So, you know, I'd like to tell you now that this is my desire, and that's what I'm working. He said, "Okay, well, you know, we're gonna I'm gonna work you in slowly, and and you know, get you on set. You'll shoot inserts, which is, you know, when you watch a show and you know somebody." you know, checks their phone and you see who's calling, like, that's an insert shot. Mm-hmm. And that was, those are, those are the first things I started doing, you know, like, give me a hand, give me a phone, and uh, let me light it the right way so it matches. And, um, you know, that was my first sort of set experience. And I would supervise all the visual effects, um, so which was more production time, more more time on set working with the crew, learning about lenses, getting a chance to talk to these guys who had worked on all these incredible projects. And then eventually, you know, it took five years, believe it or not. Uh, I think it was episode four of season five is when I finally got my chance to direct. So it was an investment that I that I that I made towards the show and, and Glenn and uh he kept his promise uh to me. And 
Um, like I said, it worked out. And I and I told him too. I said, you know, you know, I'm grateful for, for this opportunity, and, and because of it, you know, I will stay with you until the show is canceled. And you know, thank God we went seven years on that. Um, hmm. A lot of it was about forging relationships and, and then making sure that I was ready, you know, and I, and I appreciated that about him. Um, I, also, I spent a ton of time in the cutting room, too, just supervising edits with the editors. And, you know, when you're there cutting other people's footage and you're, you know, you're, 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 you desire to be in a certain place in the scene and you don't have that shot, you know, you start to wonder, like, why didn't they get that shot? You start to break down their coverage and you're trying to figure those things out. And so the, the, the editing room was a, an amazing classroom for me to learn directing. Uh, to learn about staging, to learn about how to keep scenes active and entrances and exits, and you know how do you how do you create a performance? And you know when you're running out of time, what are the what are the what's the bare minimum you need to really um, make a scene work? Because you know TV is all about working fast. It's about writing fast, directing fast, acting fast, editing fast. Um, you know we don't have the luxury that a, that a feature has. You know we don't get to shoot one page a day. We shoot seven pages a day, eight pages a day, sometimes ten pages a day. You know, TV's always been challenging in that regard. Uh, and the guys who do it well, again, look, you know, mix looking at putting a very high-quality product on the screen week after week. It's a, it's a tremendous task, you know, and I think a lot of those guys don't get enough credit because people just take it for granted because they just, you know, you tune in at the same time every week or you, you, you put on Netflix, you get to watch 10 of these in a row. You know, but a, but, a, but a show from start to finish takes months. You know, it's almost like two and a half, three months to get a show completed from start to finish. For the time that you break an idea, the time that you cast it, you write it, you know, you shoot it, you edit it, you mix it, and you put it on the air. I mean, it takes months, all for you know, forty-five minutes of programming. Essentially, what you're doing is a form of art. There, there's no doubt about it. And any artist will tell you that oftentimes they see the end result, and all they can think about is how they would have done things differently. So, in your case, how often do you feel like watching the end of an episode? Man, I should have just done that whole thing. A little bit differently. <laughs> um, that's a good question, man. Uh, more often than not, I mean, honestly, I mean, you can always overthink something, and, and you know, I, I believe there's always a better way. Usually, um, part of that is what drives me to always find that better way. You know, you never ever want to give up on a scene as a director. You know, you're literally responsible for every frame that that, that gets on the air. So, you know, I, I, I'm always hard on myself. And for me, you know, I have that kind of recall where, um, you know, I can say, you know, oh, that scene, I was on that lens doing this move, and I remember the note that I gave to that actor. And, you know, TV is a very humbling job as a director, you know, especially when you're freelancing because, you know, when I shoot, it's mine. And when I edit my cut, it's mine. But as soon as I turn on my edit, it's not mine anymore. You know, these hmm. The showrunners, the writers, the executive producers, they all get to recut my show if they desire. And ultimately, from the time that I let it go to the time that it hits the, the airwaves, I have no control over it. And so sometimes they make decisions that I don't agree with. Sometimes they actually improve my stuff and they make me look good, and I'm always grateful for that. But it's sort of like opening a, it's like opening a present on Christmas Day, you know? Like you're not really sure what you're going to get. Like you, you ask for something, but you're not sure you're going to get exactly that. <laughs> You know, sometimes, you know, it's like, I want a bike for Christmas, and you get, you know, sometimes you get, you know, a mongoose or a badass, and sometimes you open it up and it's some, like, hand-me-down tricycle, you know? Uh, it's, it's, but that, that's what's humbling about TV, you know? You you give up a lot of control once you turn in your cut, uh, which probably is why I like producing, because when I'm producing, I get to be one of those guys who, who has final say over the cut. So, you know, I, I kind of get to experience it on both sides. And I'm sure it's made you that much better as a producer because there's the understanding of what's gone into this, right? I mean, because in any business, you, you, you get that there's a human side to it. It's not just you can make a decision in a vacuum. Yeah, absolutely. That's very true. I think, you know, again, it's just both sides inform each other. Um, you know, if I'm producing – and I know that I'm trying to protect a particular story point. You know, just based on how a person is shooting their film, I can just say, hey, if you give me this shot, that'll help me out later if I want to do this. You know, and, and you know, you can make suggestions like that where, again, when you get into the edit room, you know, you have a bailout, so to speak. You know, you have a way of getting out of a shot if you need to. You have a way of, 
of, of making a moment uh, if you need to fabricate a moment. You know, we, and we do that all the time. Um, you know, as a director, you you know you're working for you're working for the producers, right? So, you know, part of my job is to give them the film that they need. You know, and so I can anticipate that now. You know, having been in the producing shoes, you know, they might want this because they may want to cut to um, this person, or they may want to put in a voice over here, or or they might want to try to create a false moment, whatever it is. Like you know, you can anticipate that stuff, and those are things, the little things you do where, you know, they get you hired again because you're always giving them. Good footage, footage that helps them tell a story. So, um, yeah, absolutely, it's it's, uh, it's a huge benefit. I remember being in in your apartment in New York City, and this must have been early two thousands. And at the time, <laughs> we were hanging out. It wasn't long after college, and and uh, the short lived Aaron Sorkin drama, Sports Night. You were absolutely obsessed with that that show at that at that moment in time. It was about Sports Center, and it was on in the late '90s. Do you remember what it was about that show that appealed to you so much? Yeah, you know, it wasn't about Sports Center. It was about it was about people. Mm-hmm. You know, it was about people and relationships. And Sorkin was able to use the backdrop of sports to tell those stories. You know, I still remember the, the pilot. You know, focused on I think this guy from Kenya running the marathon or something, um, and they were just sort of tracking this. This 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 run this 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 marathon throughout the pilot episode, but you know the way you kind of came around to it in, in the final act of the show, tied everything that they were telling together. You know, it was all about this little dude's determination and, and his huge heart. You know, and how he beat the odds to win the marathon, and you know, in some way, you know, it resonated with all the other character storylines. And and to me, that's that's awesome writing. You know, that's great storytelling. You know, and again, now it's not it's not just Hey, let's make a show about, you know, Sports Center, um, because that's what I want to do and it's cool. It's it's purposeful. Um and he uses sports to really inform and, and accentuate, you know, the the human stories that he wants to tell. Uh and it was a superb cast. I mean I, I, I still adore that show. It's incredible. It's <laughs> one of the best shows ever made, honestly. I love your passion because once again you go right back to uh, to where you were sitting on your couch at, at that point in time, just gushing about about this show, and uh, I, I still have to watch the entire series. I refuse to just watch one or two episodes of that show. I'm watching it from the beginning. I'm going to binge watch it very soon. I owe it to you, if if nothing else. That's just awesome. I'm so glad you're this passionate about it. It makes me pa- I mean, I'm passionate about life. So when other people are the same way, it always be really excited and and i guess sort of to that point i mean i guess you you can now call yourself an absolute expert on primetime dramas so how early on in a show are you aware as to whether it's going to be a hit or not oh man that's a tough question that's pretty subjective you know i mean there there are plenty of times where i think to myself you know this show is destined for success and then they end up canceling it you know, I, I there's there's no there's no definitive answer to that. Um, you know, you have a gut feeling about it. You know, a lot of it is in the execution, like in the stories they tell. And um, you know, a big thing for me when when it comes to watching you know TV or movies is you know, you know, are those moments that we see earned? You know, are we allowed to see those moments? Did our characters do enough to to warrant those scenes? Um, you know, there are some shows out there that, you know, all they are a bunch of, it's like a highlight reel, you know, they want these scenes where, you know, here's a scene where, where this person dies and here's a scene where this person says goodbye to their daughter. And here's, you know, you have all these big melodramatic scenes with no, with no threading that kind of takes them and stitches them together. Um, and to me, those are shows where I go, you know, they're never going to achieve a, you know, a level of, uh, appreciation beyond sort of what's literally in front of them. And I think there's some shows that are just really, really smart. I think Breaking Bad is just one of the smartest shows out there. Um, or were one of the smartest shows out there. Um, you know, yeah, the, the Killing was another show which I, I loved. I ever watched it the first mm-hmm. season of The Killing and I'm going like, I'm hooked. You know, because this is so different. This is a, a true character-based procedural. This is one case for the whole season, not just a case of the week. This is, you know, you're, you're showing scenes that you'll never, ever see on a network show, which is, like, parents shopping for the coffin of their dead daughter. Like, these are really, like, impactful, powerful scenes, which normally you don't have time to give towards when you're doing a, 
a one-hour, you know, network procedural. Um, because, you know, in, in those shows, you're really, you're, you're servicing the story. And if you're servicing the story, you know, the net product becomes melodramatic. You know, that's sort of the product of what you're making. And so that was always a, that was a Cindy Lumet quote, who is a very famous director um, that I've always carried with me. You know, if, if uh, his story drives character, it's melodrama. If characters drive story, it's drama. You know, so I think I think the best stories are often driven by the people in that story. You know, it's about what you want or what you know, he wants or what she wants. Um, and if they want different things, then you have conflict. And conflict is drama. That's stuff that you watch. How does this person get what they want? You know, what are the, what are the obstacles they face? So, you know, I, I think, you know, those, those are sort of the things I try to pay attention to. Um, like I say, sometimes uh, I'm, I'm right and sometimes I'm wrong. It's a very subjective call to make, though. But good question. <laughs> right. that. I'm curious almost as to that process, though, that, that you discuss. Network shows, it seems to me, have this major challenge of, and you sort of alluded to this, of, of hitting the storyline in a given episode. You know, now Netflix shows and HBO and, and Showtime can build a whole season knowing where they're going and sort of have everyone anticipating what the, the end game is going to be. How do you, working on the shows that you do, balance what you're doing in a given episode compared to your long-term storytelling? Wow, that is a that is a tough one. Um, what do you mean by long? What do you mean by long-term storytelling? Well, my point is that on network television, you're sort of stuck because you have to worry so much about whether you're going to be picked up. I always felt like that was, that's was that been a great advantage of The Wire and Sopranos and The Killing, as you say. It's almost like they have these episodes where they can leave you in anticipation and filled with drama, knowing that down the road uh, they're going to pay them off, and they don't necessarily have to on that given episode. Sure. So I'm just curious as to how you handle that single episode versus entire season that you're working towards. Well, I think the first thing to kind of address really is, you know, I, you know, it's a business, right? I mean, it's all about making money. Um, and I think, you know, network and pay cable and cable and, 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 you know, new media like Netflix, I think it's all, it's all business, but they're all different business models. And because of the, mm-hmm. the varying business models, they're allowed to take certain chances. Um, you know, when I, when I had my media on Netflix, you know, what, what, what really impressed me about them is, you know, we want to, they, they told me they, we want to work with creative people. We want to, you know, we don't have advertisers, we don't have sponsors, you know, we have a subscriber base. And all we want to do is have enough diversified content, you know, on Netflix where everyone can find something they like. And that's an, an incredible amount of freedom, you know, as an artist and, and as a person who is creating a show for them because, you know, they don't need to, you know, piss on the hydrant per se. You know, they they trust you as a creator to really come up with some pretty amazing content. And, you know, they do. They have some of the best shows out there right now. I mean, House of Cards is incredible. Sense 8 is a really incredible show. Um, Orange is the New Black. Um, they have a lot of great content. And it's because, you know, they can take those chances. You know, it's not about ratings for them. Um, you know, network, you know, ratings and, and, and you know, cable, I mean, it's huge. It's all about ratings. You know, it's mm-hmm. all about ad dollars. Um, it's how they get paid. And, you know, there was a day where, you know, if you didn't get anything um, anything more than a 4.0, you, you'd be canceled in the demos. Now, you know, you can have a 1.2 in the demos, which is the 18 to 49 category, and, you know, you're, you're considered a, a guaranteed pickup. You're a hit, you know. It's, um, the, the standards have changed so much because there's so much more content now. Um, and it's, it's so much more competitive because – you you know, you there's so many more outlets for your eyeballs to, to kind of go to. You know, you can go to Hulu has shows, Amazon's got shows. Um, you know, HBO has a very interesting thing too because for them it's just about subscribers. They want subscribers. That's what they want. You know, they right. want people. You know, you get people, you make money because, you know, you have to pay money to watch HBO or HBO Go or, mm-hmm. or whatever it is. Um, but, you know, they have the accolades. You know, every year HBO dominates the Emmys. Um, and that's what they hang their hat on. And, you know, they get to say, hey, you know, we offer award-winning television if you're willing to pay for it. 
Right, um, right. You know, for me, you know, if I'm directing an episode, I'm directing an episode. I, I don't, I don't think about ratings on directing an episode. Um, I care about the story, and you know, my name goes on it, and I got to be proud about it, and I got to feel like I did the best job I can, and you know, I just try to tell the best story I can. You know, and I try to be mindful of, you know, you know, you, you want to give them promotable moments. You want to give them um, iconic scenes. If, if 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 your script has that, um, you're always trying to do that. I think it's it's important um, because, again, you, you can have episodes that sort of stand out from other ones. But, yeah, if I'm directing an episode, I'm, I'm in that episode, and then, you know, I'm basically going to move on to the next one. You know, for me, I, I finished Supergirl next uh, Tuesday, and then on Wednesday I start Elementary. And then elementary ends, and I start on Criminal Minds Beyond Borders. And I just go back to back to back, and I'm constantly shifting gears. So I have to be able to compartmentalize and, you know, finish one project and start a new one. It, it's incredible. It's like your resume is what a lot of people just have on their DVRs. That's pretty incredible to me. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Um, I, I guess I just want to close with some some quick questions, if um, if we can, and then and then I'll let you go. I appreciate all your time, but – some basketball, some TV. How do you find that the people love the game differently in, in New York and L.A.? Well, the difference is in Los Angeles, people show up around the second quarter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in New York, they show up halfway through the first. <laughs> um, no, you know what? I think I do think it's more passionate in L.A., and I hate to say that because I'm a New Yorker. Wow. By heart. But I do. I think it's. I think basketball is more passionate in L.A., um, you know, a lot of it, I think, has to do with just the recent success. Well, not that recent anymore, but, you know, with the uh, the, the Lakers have had, you know, um, mm-hmm. in the past 12 years or so. Um, you know, the, the, the Kobe-led Lakers and the Shaq-led Lakers, I think um, they've, they've gotten so used to winning. You know, it's such a huge part of the city. Um, you know, it's, it's this generation's version of Showtime, um, or was. Um, obviously, we know that they've really suffered much the last couple of years, um, Kobe's not the same anymore. But um, I mean, you, you look at New York right now. I mean, New York is just dying for, I think, an identity. You know, I, I don't know if they know who they are right now. And um, I think the 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 Patrick Ewing, Charles Oakley, John Starks, Knicks were like the perfect example of what New York basketball is all about. You know, um, right. and ever since that team sort of dissolved. You know, New York New York Knicks basketball really doesn't to me doesn't really reflect the city. Hmm. That's a blue collar team right there, you know. And you know, again, you know, I was a teenager, um, and you know, the early part of us going to college. I mean, that, that was so predominant, you know, when I was hmm. watching professional sports. You know, those were the Knicks. You know, Patrick yep. Riley was like the perfect coach for them too. <laughs> and like, think about a guy like Anthony Mason, rest in peace. Mm-hmm. You know, that dude was just a physical beast. You know, Anthony Mason, you had Charles Oakley, you had John Starks, the guy who was bagging groceries, shooting threes, dunking over Jordan. Um, I mean, it was it was it was a it was a team. It was, they were so likable. They were hustlers. You know, and yes. I'm sorry, but how do you not like Patrick Ewing? I love Patrick Ewing and his bad knees. You know, you thought the guy was going to fall apart. Like you know, every time he did a little fadeaway on the baseline. So you know, that that was a likable New York team. I think the city really backed that team. You know, but if you just look at the look at the next team in the last, you know, eight years. You know, who are they? Tell yeah. me. You know. Yeah. Because like again, like you know, they drafted Ewing. You know, um, yeah, they didn't they didn't they didn't draft Mello, they didn't draft Stoudemire. You know, <laughs> you know, they haven't had a cornerstone, you know, player. You know, as far as I can remember, in in, in quite some time. And like you bring up, those teams were incredibly tough. I mean, Oakley, Mason, Ewing. I mean, those those were yeah, tough they, teams. They beat people up, man. They beat people up. Yes, you probably couldn't get away with a lot of that now, but it was awful fun to watch watch back in the back in the day. Who's your Who's your current favorite NBA player? My current favorite NBA player. I got honestly, it's gotta be Steph Curry. I love watching that dude. Yeah, he he's got an incredible game. You shoot the lights out, but he's he's a likable player. I mean, actually, I mm-hmm. find that entire Golden State team likable, even Bogut. <laughs> I just <laughs> I mean, they're a likable team. Um, Clay Thompson, I mean, but yeah, Steph Curry. I just I mean, if he's on, I will watch him play. Dude's like on ice skates. I mean, he's 
He blows my mind. You know, he's, he's, so, he's, a, he's a winner. He's so much fun to watch, yes. Favorite current TV show that you haven't worked on? Very good question. Um, Daredevil. Maybe House of Cards. Probably Daredevil. Why would you say that? Um, I mean, because if you think about it, House of Cards really is just a bunch of people in the room talking. You know, it's filled with good performances. But with Daredevil, it's, it's dark, and, you know, every now and then you get an action sequence, and, you know, it's Daredevil. Like, I feel like I'm, I'm part of uh, this new wave of trying to fix that Ben Affleck movie, you know? <laughs> <laughs> if, uh, a moment in your career that you would change. That I could change? Yeah. Cool. None. I love that. Yeah. Something I, you'd... I have, oh, I go have ahead. this conversation a lot because there's been just there's there's been forks in a row, you know, like there's been moments in my life where I could have gone this way or that way. You know, I could have I could have worked on Ed or I could have been Kate Beckinsale's assistant, you know, and um I chose Ed. <laughs> um <laughs> just like weird things like that, you know, where honestly at the time I thought you know, she's a movie star. She's beautiful. She's working on Sarah Dibby with John Cusack, and she needs an assistant. And I thought, you know, this, this, maybe that gets me a step closer to features. And, <laughs> and I was like, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this show instead. You know, I was like, I don't want to get her laundry. <laughs> um, I don't want to fetch her dry cleaning. Um, you know, and whatever. Maybe I, I missed out because I'll never ever get to work with this beautiful woman. But uh, you know. It, it, it ended up being the right choice for me because Ed led me to Medium, which now led me to my directing career. Again, I, I don't, I have no regrets. You know, I, I yeah, you know, I just, I walked the road that was in front of me. So, um, I, I, I don't look back with any regrets. All right. So then, something you'd still like to do in your career, but you have yet to do: direct a pilot and direct a feature. You know which feature you'd uh, like to direct? Some people ask me that a lot. I think. I think a really good example of what I would like to do is something um, like Movie Drive. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, again, it's, it's dark, it's character-driven. Uh, you know, it's, it's got a real cinematic feel to it. You know, I also look at, you know, Michael Mann's Heat, and I go, you know, I love that movie too, you know. It's just like <laughs> yeah. really, really, really fleshed out good guys and bad guys. One... <laughs> One badass shootout in downtown LA, you know, with echoing gunfire and um, and an amazing cast and just a, a really awesome story. Um, but the scope of Heat is something that I would love to achieve as well. Brilliant movie, no no doubt about that. What advice would you give someone who's young, just finished college or high school, and wants to get into the TV business? My advice would be, whatever the job is, get in the door. You know, get in the door, and you can figure out where you want to go from there. Those stories you hear are true. You know, whether you're a page at NBC, or you work security at Warner Brothers, or you're the guy getting the mail at UTA, or one of those big agencies. You know, you got to start somewhere. And you got to get in the door. And you got to get exposure to those people. And these are the people that you're going to befriend, and, and you know, they're going to help you out in your career. I mean... I remember guys that I came up with, people who were at like the same levels, like PAs, who, you know, one of my best friends, Corey, you know, he was a PA with me on Now and Again, and now he's a producer on The Walking Dead. Um, another buddy of mine, Chris Dingus, he was a PA with me on, on Now and Again, and now he's a an executive producer on Agent Carter. You know, we're all coming up together, you know, and it's, uh, it's good right. to stay with each other. Um, so these are the relationships that you sort of foster early, you know, and you, you grow together. You know, eventually you, you want to, you know, you, you end up working with everybody. You know, because they'll get a show. They'll call you. They want to hire you to direct. Or you'll get a show, and you'll call them to hire them to write or whatever it is. You know, maybe they're it's an actor, and it's the same thing. You know, you, you know, everyone kind of gets big together. You know, and you create this network. But I think relationships are, are really important. I think getting in the door is important. I, I don't think you can be too picky. You know, I, I think there's a time and a place to be picky. But I think when you're first starting out, just get a job that that that, that gets you in. You know, and then try to maneuver yourself from there. That's incredible advice and leads to my very last question. And that is just look back on your entire career. And it's weird to say that now, considering we went to college together and I'll always think of you as a 19 year old kid making fun of Matt Dolman. <laughs> but uh, 
moment in your <laughs> the moment in your career that you're the most proud of. Uh, my career that I'm most proud of. Um, the single moment. That is very difficult. I will give you, you know what, the the very first episode I ever directed and watching that on air, you know, and seeing seeing that that credit that said directed by Larry Tang. That was probably my my most proudest moment because I felt like I finally made it. I felt like, you know, for me, it just it felt like it was forever. That the the struggle to finally get that opportunity and to finally get that moment to shine to to direct. Um, something that I knew millions of people were going to watch. Um, it was it was pretty incredible, you know, and, and probably a little overwhelming. But that's probably my, my my proudest moment because I felt like, you know, I finally made it. That is really cool. That's special. Thank you, buddy. I, I appreciate uh, you jumping on, and um, you know, I'm very proud of all the work you've done, and um, I'm really excited about your entire career. It's been really really fun. Like I said watching sometimes from afar, sometimes from your couch, but uh, seeing the journey has been awesome for me. So thank you for jumping on and uh, congrats on all the success. Anytime, man. Adam, thank you so much. Really appreciate having my old friend, Larry Tang, join us. Larry is, as you can hear, just a very thoughtful guy, extremely intelligent, had so much to offer. Please uh, watch his shows. You know, let's give the guy some ratings here. Uh, He doesn't really need our help, but He's doing extremely well for himself. But if you do want to watch, Graceland is on the USA Network. Again, he's an executive producer for that. And also Supergirl on CBS. And I know he's going to be putting together some outstanding stuff. Larry's a very, very talented director as well as a talented producer. You can also follow Larry on Twitter, at Larry Tang, T-E-N-G. And you can follow the Great Point Podcast on Twitter, at Great Point Pod. Jump on Twitter. Let me know your thoughts and uh, good, bad, or otherwise. It's just really fun having you guys participate in the show. This has been so much fun and uh, really excited about where this this podcast is headed and appreciate all the support. Please, please subscribe on iTunes. I can't be emphatic about that enough. Thank you so much uh, for listening. Thank you for subscribing and uh, we'll catch you next time.